Hey, I'm Pop Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. I made a new friend this episode. Meet Ralph Covert. Most people might know him from Ralph's World, his children's music project, but he's done so much more. And we talk about all of that. His career in the music industry, the highs and lows, does he have any regrets? And it gets really real really quick. So I'm going to shut up and let you listen to it. Enjoy it. So, for those that don't know you, could you give kind of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you've done over the years? Sure. Um, first kind of got uh, prominence with the Bad Examples, my rock band in the 90s. Uh, we released a bunch of records on our own. We toured in Europe and America, um, had some success on radio, but never really broke through to that next big level but we were very you know popular in the clubs and uh had a you know we made a serious go at it um right around the turn of the 2000s i put out my first um kids music album uh as ralph's world and that kind of as uh that really took off and uh, we were kind of making kids music that parents could love as much as the kids so it was uh, i really wasn't interested in doing uh, some kind of a dumbed down or uh, pablum type of music. Um, I'd been making, teaching some little kids wiggle worm classes at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. And um, I had the chance to put out a kid's record with a local label. And uh, when, the, when, when, when the guy initially asked me if I wanted to, to make a kid's record, I said, um, not really, but I'd be interested in making a great record that kids love. And that kind of became our mission statement. Uh, so Ralph's World really became very popular. Um, we were doing something at that point that no one had ever really thought of doing, making you know uh, music for kids that wasn't kids' music. Um, people later started calling it kindy music, combining kids' music and indie music. Uh, so I guess I started a music genre. Uh, <laughs> uh, and eventually I ended up on, on Disney, which was great great to work with them they played they made videos and played them on their television station and released the records um and uh in retrospect uh the economic collapse of 2008 really kind of took the wind out of a lot of things that were happening uh in a far bigger scale than just my music uh, and that was really kind of the 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 point at which for Ralph's world, the wings got clipped. Um, 
went on after that to try to make a pilot for a television show that we tried to pitch and have done some other things. So I'm still continuing to do Ralph's World, continuing to do Bad Examples type music. Um, I've At the beginning of COVID, I started doing some shows on and live streaming shows called Staycation. And I've done over 900 of those shows. And in addition to the Ralph's World and Bad Examples type stuff, I do solo Ralph Covert shows uh, with uh, keyboard, electric guitar, vocals, and string quartet. So those have been very creatively uh, uh, exciting and interesting. So really, the, the the broad view of my career, it's, it's always been about you know songwriting and uh, and being creative. I guess I've done things other than songwriting, too. I've written a number of plays and musicals. A couple of the plays have won... Uh, Joseph Jefferson citations, a Jeff Award in Chicago is like a Tony in New York. So I've won two Jeff Awards. Um, I've got some dabbled in some classical composition. I won the uh, ILMEA Best Classical Composition Award a couple of years ago. So just, you know, my I'm just I, I'm, I'm a, I love exploring, creating, challenging myself and trying to, uh, um, you know, make I. I I'm, I'm just i'm trying to make the world a better place one song at a time well that was a very the elevator got stuck so you had time to give that elevator pitch i, I, I that pulled, that is such a that button off so that it couldn't go any further well oh well, that well i'm so thankful for that um <laughs> so a question based on all of that yeah. Is there something in your career that you regret doing as a creative? Is there something that you did where it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, but it made you stronger because of it? Um, I wouldn't say there's anything I regret. Certainly, I've, um, I, I don't really have anything I regret because even things that, even mistakes I made or even wrong turns ended up being uh uh you you can't you can't predict the benefits that come from your mistakes i'll give you an example um in the mid 90s i'd been doing we'd been touring europe a number of times and uh i was over there a a dutch band had hired me to work with them to sing and, and do some some touring with them as part of that i met a guy who was a dutch live promoter and he wanted to bring the bad examples over for a tour to Holland. Well, so happened about the same time I had um, a contact here who uh, was able to get me a booking at Euro Disney in Paris, and oh, wow. I was in England. So I was able to kind of uh, reach out to the contacts I had there. So I put together about a month long tour that started with a couple weeks in Holland, and then went to Euro Disney, and then went to England. Um, and you know, the first half was all it was this Dutch tour. And uh, as the everything else was locked down, France and England were locked down. And we, we'd always had a lot of success in Holland. Uh, it was the country we were strongest in. And this guy had good uh, recommendations from people that I'd worked with. But as, as, as we're getting closer to leave, he starts waffling and he's like, well, I, I can't get you the deposit. I can't do this. I can't do that. He was supposed to play for the plane tickets. I can't. I can't cover the plane tickets. Can you cover them, and I'll I'll, I'll I'll take care of that. So things started 
sounding suspicious, but you know, over that six weeks as it approached, I said, well, I'll take care of the plane tickets. Then we get close. Well, I can't reimburse you for the plane tickets until you get here. Okay. And then, well, I can't pay you the deposit. Hmm. Okay. But everything's still okay. Yeah, everything's still okay. So by the time we, I just pressed forward because I, I, with every, everything else was solid and I really wanted it to happen. And I, um, you know, pushed forward. Even on the plane over there, I was looking at all the stuff that wasn't lining up properly for this. And I was, had a bad feeling, but, you know, again, he had a good reputation. We got there and he picked us up in this uh, van, like like a 1970s van with plush carpet on the floor of the wall. Oh, wow. Like, we're like, whoa, like, this is psychedelic. psychedelic. It was totally Austin Powers. It would have been perfectly in place in an Austin Powers movie. We're like, well, this is cool. Makes this is entertaining. So, of course, no seats. So we bounced along in the back on the and the shag carpeting. And uh, you know, he, he he drove us to this small town in the east of Holland. And we're like, oh, this is interesting, but okay, it's a way to do it. Like he it was housing us in the rooms behind a bar in the outside this small town. We're like, this is interesting. Okay, but. He says, everything's great. Everything's great. Shows us the town. Shows us this boxcar where there's a radio station that operates out of it that we're going to do an interview at. Great. First night, we're going to play. You're going to play a show in the in the, in the the bar as a warm-up. And then the rest of the tour kicks off from there. Sounds great. So, you know, we play our first show there in the bar. And it's not perfect, but it's a chance to play. It's basically a, a rehearsal for an audience. It's fine. And then the do that radio interview and everything's fine getting ready for our, our our first official show and he comes in all distraught oh the bar has been shut down there was a a fire in the bar last night oh that's bad news okay so we're not gonna be playing tonight okay so we hang out next day oh uh, there was a big bar fight at the bar and um uh that show's been canceled at this point start to get a bit suspicious so i i start to question him about it and all of a sudden he can't speak English. He can only speak Dutch. Well, I'd toured Holland enough times I'd picked up Dutch. So I start questioning him in, in Dutch, which freaked the hell out of him. Um, you can't speak English? I'll speak to you in Dutch. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, ik spreek Nederlands. I speak Dutch. Let's let's do this. Well, the guy turned out to be a complete flake. He was uh, had some apparently some uh, problems with alcohol. And had intended to book the tour, but had not been able to book it and hadn't had the strength and courage to say, I failed. So he ended up bringing us over for an imaginary tour. And it was a uh, really stressful within the band. Half the, the, the second half of the tour was still solid and good to go. But, uh, uh, but the half of my band, three out of the five members, uh, and I, I said to them, look, you're here. I'm going to pay your per diem. I'm going to still pay you for the shows. You're here. If there doesn't matter to you, you just, you're getting paid the same. You're here. Enjoy Holland. It's a paid vacation. And we'll make it up on the back end. But the guys in my band at the time couldn't deal with that level of uncertainty. And so they requested to be flown home. So I flew everybody home except Pickles Pekarski, the bass player from the bad examples. And he played on all the Ralph's world records and um, pickles and I did our best to push through. And, you know, some of the gigs did come through in Holland. Uh, 
uh, Euro Disney wasn't very happy to have us show up as a bass guitar, an acoustic guitar duo <laughs> instead of a full band. We tried to hire local musicians, but couldn't find people that, that could do it. Uh, and, you know, um, as a as a tour, it was a disaster, right? Uh, a promoter with an imaginary with imaginary shows and uh, half the band bails and goes goes home and we pushed on and did it as a tour it was a disaster um as an experience um it was magnificent and you know pickles and i uh had we had an amazing trip and we had a lot of great experiences and i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world so you know when you ask are the things that you regret you know yeah there are times and places that i've ended up in situations through my own choices that were not what I had thought was going to be the outcome. But I think if anytime you're trying to impose your own version of reality onto what is reality, you're going to have, have friction and, and it's, it's not going to, it's not going to match up. But if you can allow yourself to experience what's actually happening, it's, there's nothing to regret at all. Well, that's great because as a creative person myself, there are times that I regret things like an interview I've done or someone that I've come in contact with because they just don't understand what I'm trying to do, right? Mm. And it'll affect the conversation. Like I did an interview once and the person that I... It was a high-profile guest, and they they called me a derogatory name based on my disability. And at that moment, it's like, what do you do? And it's like, I don't have time for people that don't understand what we're trying to do. Thankfully, that doesn't happen all the time. But if you're going to be interviewed on a public platform, have the decency to respect the person on the other end. Oh, of course. Well, and I, I, I would, you know, it's there are certainly situations like that that can be hurtful, but uh, you can't regret other people's unfortunate choices. I mean, they, that's that's just sad. That being said, it still does leave sort of a bad taste. Oh, sure, of course. But thankfully, there have been more good than bad, and I'm happy for that within the 13 years that I've been t uh, chatting with folks like you. So, let's talk about Ralph's world in specific. Sure. You kind how I how I discovered you is a story within itself. Yeah, it's it it not it's not the typical way that you would have been found. When I was around eight years old, okay. I got I got an MP3 player for Christmas, and 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 preloaded on there was. At the bottom of the sea. Crazy. And I never took it off. <laughs> I And then I heard the whole album and stuff like that. So it's like... And I think that was years before the Disney stuff happened. Yeah, so that's when I was empty fresh. I, I love that so much. How the internet age kind of... You, got, you were kind of with the internet age. When a lot right. of people weren't doing it yet, so right? When did you realize? When did you guys realize as a group 
we have to utilize what people are doing now. I mean, the internet was around for, like, years at that point, but people weren't selling their music yet. It was like the birth of iTunes was a couple months prior to it. So, like, when did you start to realize we have to utilize these tools? Well, um, there's there are always new ways to to connect and reach with people, and uh, it, to me, it, it the goal in reaching people is fun, is connecting with them. The goal any any one particular conduit is serves that greater goal to connect with them. So uh, you know, if you are only releasing records on vinyl or only releasing stuff physically, you're automatically thinking of yourself as somebody who releases things on vinyl and CD versus somebody who's trying to find ways to connect with the audience. And if, if you look at that bigger picture of connecting with the audience, then all mechanisms for doing it have their own strengths and weaknesses. So I'm reminded, um, I, th- I think I probably some of this philosophy came from my dad, who was a very early um, adopter of computers in general. He was a uh, had been a college engineering professor, so they had the he would bring us my grade school friends and I down to the com- the, the computer at their university took up an entire city block. One computer, vacuum tube computer, filled the entire building, and you did it with punch cards. Then a number of years later, when I was in high school, he did a lot of genealogy work and um, had a, a Radio Shack TRS eighty computer that the memory bank for it was a cassette player. He'd get home from work, he'd put the cassette in, upload one word, one, you know, one text document that had all his genealogy stuff on it while he's eating dinner. It took about 40 minutes to upload one file. He would make amendments and changes and add add whatever new information he had. And then he'd save it by recording it to a cassette that took another 45 minutes. Um, and he would uh, be, he, he went to work for the American Hospital Association, and it became a joke within the industry. And you'll laugh at this. He he was saying literally years and years and years, computers are going to revolutionize hospitals. And everybody, it was a running joke within the hospital industry. They they say covert, let it go. Computers are for accounting. They'll n- never do this. Patients will never do this. You're dreaming, covert. Computers are for accounting. Yeah. Okay. Right. I think I think he's been proven right on that one. Yeah. Cause like I said, you guys really champion the digital age. I mean, with the story I told you about the first MP3 player that was late '03, early '04, and again, there was Napster years, but there was things like that before. But like, and. People were obviously putting CDs on computers, but to to kind of market yourself in the digital world when people were just dabbling in it is a real cool thing. Yeah, and I think it wasn't that we were particularly brilliant. We just got lucky that that opportunity was there, and that you know that. Um... Wait, so how did that opportunity come about? Like, how did that end up there? <laughs> The guy that the rec the Ralph's World Records were out on a Chicago company called Minty Fresh, and uh, as I said, the you know the the well the guy that ran the company was kind of an indie rock guy. 
uh, he was not a kid's music person, but his son had been in one of my Wiggle Worms classes and he, his wife was sick. He brought his son to class. He said, Ralph, I didn't know you were making kids music. I said, Jim, I didn't know you were Brendan's dad. So he asked if I wanted to do a kid record, as I mentioned before. And I said, no, I'll make a great record kids like. So we approached kids music as if it was indie rock. Uh, we didn't go to preschools. We went to rock clubs. We got a booking agent that was used to booking, you know, major label indie bands, you know, uh, and we approached it from that perspective. And same thing with all of the stuff with marketing, you know, uh, we, you know, he and I are both out there and he, the opportunity to do this thing with the uh, MP3 players came up and he approached it the same way he would have with one of his rock bands of those saying, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's grab every chance we can to get the music in front of people. And we did similarly, we did a lot of borders touring, borders shows. Oh, I'm a lot of oh, kids I, are I miss them. I know, right? So I did probably three, four hundred borders shows, which was more of an indie rock thing to do. Kids artists didn't go on borders tours. So me doing that, there was a wide open niche there because uh that's how indie rock artists did touring into clubs, touring at borders and stuff like that, not kids' music. So within the kids' music and family music. Uh, it was a wide open field for that kind of, and the same kind of thing with the, with the MP3, you know, we were just combining the universality of family music with the kind of the hustle and leave no stone underturned um, thing of um, indie rock. So I think it was a combination of those two worlds kind of combining in a way. What I love about that is it's so like, it's such a fluke thing that I found you through that, but I'm so glad that it happened because People know you from the daily stuff, but I can have this quote-unquote approach where like, I saw them before they were famous, but it works. It works, and that's part of the, you know, there's that whole wonderful music discovery piece of it. You know, we all love finding and discovering music that connects with us. And that's kind of at the heart of that indie rock ethos. That's what indie rock was really all, all about, was, you know, uh, that kind of music discovery connecting with fans. Which comes back to my philosophy to this day of making the world a better place one song at a time. Similar, similar thing happened with the uh, streaming stuff. Nobody knows this, but it's uh, uh, back in, I think, 2016, I performed the very first ever Facebook Live music show, music concert. Uh, wow. Facebook Live streaming stuff was only out on beta. And uh, I had something pop up on my feed of somebody... Um, showing something from his son's basketball game, grade school basketball game or something. I had a good friend at the time who was a fan who'd seen me and we'd uh, gotten to know each other a little bit, uh, who was one of the top um, marketing people at Facebook at the time. Um, and I called I called up Steve and I said, you know, what's this Facebook Live stuff? He's like, oh, that's on beta. You can't, there's only like 1% of the people have it. They're just, experimenting with it and rolling it out. I'm like, I would love to get that. I'd love to do a music concert with that. And he's like, oh, that's exciting. No one's ever done that. Let me see if I can get you a beta copy of it. And he did. And we um, we had a small studio audience. We set up, we did a, a trio performance at my studio here in Chicago. And Steve Biddle from Facebook was there. And we, we performed the Bad Examples, Bad is Beautiful album in sequence. Uh, and it was the first ever Facebook live music streaming. Um, 
and that 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 gets me nothing. Nobody knows, and it doesn't really matter. But but it's it, cool for you to know. It is cool, right? But so then, um, in that same kind of th- sense, when COVID happened, um, you know, like the, the first week in, I was kind of feeling at loose ends, and as as many people were, and it struck me if I'm feeling kind of disoriented and at loose ends, a lot of other people must be similarly upended in their life. And so I started doing uh, uh, some, you know, a daily, actually twice daily um, streaming uh, live acoustic shows. In the morning, I do a placation show, so-called, of Ralph's World songs. And then in the evening, I, I started with the Ralph's World in the morning. And then I, about after about a week, I added staycation in the evening where I would do you know, bad examples, Ralph Covert, everything. So I started doing these live streaming shows uh, just because I had a sense that if I was feeling disoriented by the way COVID had shut down the world, that a lot of other people must be similarly looking for something to connect with. And it really took off into this amazing community across the country um, of people watching my shows and connecting with each other. The community was all about them in the chat, communicating and, and connecting and forming friendships. And um, at this point, I'm still doing them. I do them. I don't do them as often these days, but I, I do them as much as I can. I've done over 900 of those. And uh, and as a result of, of doing the staycation shows, uh, the, the COVID years were a very fruitful and productive time for me. I was you know singing and playing guitar every day. And my guitar playing and singing and songwriting all are, I think, better than they've been my entire career. And the fans, because initially they were um, wanting all the hits, and then they wanted the deep album cuts. And then as they got, as more time went on, then they wanted new songs. So all of a sudden, it turned into this thing where they were um, clamoring for me to be giving them new stuff. So it became a great uh, community and a great creative spur and a great welcoming place for me to to grow and share and really was a became a, a remarkable uh benefit and you know that does go back to that same uh kind of the irony of the of the very first ever facebook live that same as you and you brought it up with the with the mp3 thing you know this embracing whatever way whatever embracing whatever opportunities are available to connect with people through the music uh, absolutely so and at some point in my interview, I always ask this question. And because mm. we're, we're having a vulnerable and sort of a deep conversation, I thought I would ask this now. Do you have any questions for me about what I do in my work, in my life, or anything of that sort? Yeah. Could you give me the elevator uh, overview of what you do? I, would really, I, was, I was wondering how to ask that that wouldn't be uh, deflecting. So that, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, what's 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 your what's your story? Well, my story is that I'm a pop culture nerd by default, and, <laughs> and I say that because I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at the age of two, and, <laughs> because, and because I couldn't really play outside all that much. Mm-hmm. I I really relied on music and television and movies and all these things mm-hmm. to kind of get me through things and right. dealing with this, you know. I'm, and there are more people that are 
worse off than me, but it got its own set of challenges. Right. <laughs> like, for example, I would be watching Nickelodeon, and then I would be flipping over to MTV and watching the latest videos of the day. Like, I was watching things at four or five years old that don't come into the lexicon of someone until they're a teenager. Right. And I loved it because the stuff I know now that people are discovering through things like TikTok or whatever they have, I've known this stuff for years. Right. So, you know, I've always been toying around with radio and recording fake radio shows on cassettes. Every kid does something of the sort. And, but when podcasting came around, I recorded my first podcast in 2006 when I was 12 years old. Oh. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was very, it sounded like it was recorded off of a tin, a tin can with an audio interface attached to it. Like, it was very lo- low grade. Right. But then I started doing like internet radio like I would I would apply for radio station jobs as a teenager and I got fired from one of them (laughs) and I said you know what I need to find something to do in between graduating middle school and going into high school so that summer I started this podcast and it it was four hours live Wow. Every single day. That'll learn you. And then, because of my physical limitations, it became too much. Mm -hmm. You know, I was running a board. I was taking phone calls. I was doing, like, the top 40 radio DJ thing. And then I was like, I have to slow down for me. So I started doing a fully produced version of that Top 40 show, like for radio stations for years, but I Uh couldn't commit to that. So my friend said to me, you know what? You need to do a podcast on your own time when you want with however many edits you need to make so Mm -hmm. you feel comfortable with yourself, you know? And then, then I start... But even that version of the show was very, like, I was interviewing punk rock bands. Like, and now, and then I interviewed someone, a puppeteer from, like, the Jim Henson era. Like, this guy, Noel McNeil. And that was the first guy that I ever interviewed in children's entertainment. Mm. So, like, my point in saying all of that is... We are in similar worlds. Right. To where we weren't meant to do this in this way, but we're here. Right. And that is my long, similar to yours, elevator pitch. (laughs) Excellent. It's really cool to sort of lay that out and realize I've been doing this for almost 13 years. Amazing. Because the problem is... So many people use podcasting as a step to get to where they want to go. The landscape is so large 
and there are so many podcasts out there, and it's so hard to cut through the noise. Yeah, need to so, do it. So I have a unique voice, and I try to exercise that and talk about my disability when I never used to. Awesome. My youngest sister, who just passed um, earlier, end of last year, um, but uh, she was a uh, mosaic Down syndrome. Oh, wow. Um, uh, obviously, very deep uh, experience with that. She graduated high school um, um, and had some other things that, uh, that happened, but, you know, certainly the she was, to the end, one of my heroes because of her spirit and her ability to overcome. She was... That's really what we try to do is we don't, but also there's a difference between inspiring others and being so inspired because you got up, the person got up out of bed every day because I do what you do, but just differently. Yeah. And I feel like diversity inclusion is this big buzzword now. But it should have just always existed this way, you know. You know. Yeah, I agree. It's like uh, to go to the grocery store and be surprised that there are things other than vegetables. That's stupid, and really does shouldn't need pointing out. There's oh my! That's such a such a funny analogy. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, you can use that. <laughs> I will. I'll give you credit every single time. So. What is diversity and inclusion like at a Ralph's World show? What kind of extra sort of things do you do, if any, to make sure that everyone is included? I don't really do anything other than just uh, connect with and perform for and spend time with everyone as they are. Perfect. Like it kind of reminds me of um, I played a show in New York City three weeks after 9/11. Oh yeah, it was really hairy, and I mean the the smoke was still coming up from from the fires burning under. I went down to visit the site, right? You could the smoke was still coming up, was still on fire underground, and smell the the you could awful. But I was interviewed by one of the um you know I can't which one one of the one of the New York newspapers and. They said, uh, what are you going to do differently um, with your children's show to uh, to because of the, you know, this horrible. I said, I'm not going to do anything because as horrible as it is, it's just something that's a blip in time. Childhood is for these children. Childhood is going to be the rest of their lives. Childhood actually matters. And I'm doing something for them as kids and as human beings that's their childhood is far more important than the blip of this awful event so i'm not going to change what i'm doing for them as kids in any way because th- this awful event is not as important as their childhood so you know what that reminds me of for remembering 911 a couple years ago i spoke with the vice president of programming at Radio Disney. Okay. And I said, how did you guys, how did you guys handle it? 
because I was your listener then. I was six years old when that happened, living an hour away from the towers. Right. And, you know, my school nurse's husband passed away in the towers. Wow. So, like, I, even as a six-year-old, I knew, like, this is big stuff. This is, this is bigger than anything I've ever seen and probably will ever see. Like, so, I said, what did you do to deal with it? And they said, we just didn't talk about it because that is the parent's job or the caregiver's job or whoever. Like, we can respond to it so they did a tribute song a couple months later but they never addressed it they never talked about it because it wasn't their job but they but they were as you say they were aware of it so i'm going to get back to your initial question about inclusion the key to inclusion is to be inclusive it's not to uh be um virtue signaling i'm going to do this or that say oh looky we're doing this but you just do the fundamental thing in the first place yeah exactly so is there any experience at, in in your time as a musician for kick that sticks out with you is there a story or a couple of stories that just just make you think wow i can have that impact on so two stories come to mind off the top of my head um one uh for whatever reason i've been told many times by uh teachers and helpers that work with kids that are autistic that autistic kids tend to respond more uh have a deep have, have a very deep response to my kids music compared to other kids music i don't know there's not that's not something that i set out to do but i've heard that many many times and one story that a gal told me um i think in st louis uh, that just completely blew me away related to that, that her son had been completely nonverbal and, uh, uh, and, and was fairly profoundly autistic, really had an incredibly difficult time socializing at all and was nonverbal. And he fell in love with my music and began singing all the songs. And from that then transitioned into speaking and connecting socially and they said it's that it was that for, i'm gonna cry for him the ralph's world music was the the thing that connected with him that allowed him to engage with the world he, it, and was, I, it was the gateway to the gateway that's the word i was looking for absolutely and they, they brought him to one of my shows and and she, she had mentioned this after the show and i was like i almost found it hard to believe because he was so externalized and so jubilant and so engaged and 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 she's like yeah but that's because it's with you because today him at this show is the most engaged i've ever seen him in his entire life but that's because you, you, your word was great the gateway that allowed him to connect with the world so that that was one and i've had a, quite a few experiences like that with parents of kids with especially autism but a lot of other disabilities where the music connects with them specifically. And that, especially with my, obviously, relationship with my youngest sister, um, that's something that um, is profoundly moving to me. And the other story that I'll tell that, that kind of is similar, but um, <laughs> maybe a little bit more humorous, I was on a plane flying to do a show. And this is probably about 
to 10 years ago, which I remember I would say because my son, Jude, who's 13 now, was probably two or three at the time. And so I had a lot of those questions about how, how who's he going to grow up to be? What's our relationship going to be like sort of stuff? And um, he was, uh, there was a, a father and son about, you know, three, four rows ahead of me in this airplane. And they had such a great relationship. They were laughing. They were clearly super tight. The kid was probably late teens and they were just, I was, I was watching them and thinking, wow, when I, I, I just hope that Jude and I are that tight. So that we continue this relationship so that we have that kind of relationship. And uh, we exit the airplane and you know they're, they're about 30 feet ahead of me to, going down the concourse and still this great energy between them. And then all of a sudden, I don't know where the sun turns around and starts walking back toward the plane, like straight towards me. And I'm like, oh shoot, he must have, poor guy, he must have left something on the airplane as we've you know, all done. It's like, oh, my laptop, it's in, the, it's in the seat pocket, oh, or whatever it is, right? I'm like, shoot, I feel bad that he left something on the plane or something. And so he's walking towards me and he he gets up to where he's just about to pass, pass me to go back, back past me to the airplane. And he stops dead in his tracks right in front of me. And he goes, are you Ralph? <laughs> I said, oh, yes. He's like, he turned around and goes, dad, I told you. And the dad's coming up too, and they're laughing. And I'm like, what? And they tell me this story that um, he, the two of them are flying uh, because he's going to be auditioning to be, to study at Juilliard Academy of Music. And he says, you're the reason I'm here. He goes, I fell in love with your music as a kid. And I became obsessed with the idea that I was going to be a musician just like you. And, and, and I said, you guys were, I was watching you guys on the plane and you guys were so connected. I just, it was, I loved how much fun you were having, how much you were laughing. They're like, we were laughing the whole trip because we're like, oh my God, is that Ralph? That can't be Ralph from Ralph's World. I think it is. Really? No. Oh we, were like, we were talking about you. We were so trying to figure out if it was you. And I'm like, wow. And he's like, and he's like, you know what? Because of you, I decided to become a musician and that's why i'm on the was on this plane today to audition for juilliard and i was terrified i've been so nervous he's like but you were on the plane with me he's like i'm gonna nail it i because i he goes what are the odds you started this journey and you flew with me there so you know those are two stories off the top of my head of just you know being able to have an impact and like i said change the world one song at a time well Bottom- Showed up on your MP3 player, and it made a difference. Yeah, it did. And, and just this conversation has impacted me, and I hope, you know, we can stay friends and chat. Yeah. Because, you know, when when I was a kid listening to that song, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do yet. Mm-hmm. And then when I started this whole thing, it's like, this is bigger than me. Yeah. And I'm aware of that. So many people in my predicament, they have podcasts, sure, but it's about the disability. Right. And with that, it becomes patronizing. It's a a self-patronizing, which is kind of bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, my girlfriend that I've been with for almost a year, she has cerebral palsy like me. She's visually impaired. And has 
other health issues. I don't date her because she has cerebral palsy. I just date her because she's cool. And people ask me, they're like, oh, we can't because you both have CP? No. Like, why is that even a thought? Uh, the one thing I would say with it that probably helps with it is um, it reminds me of um, what Mick Jagger said when John Lennon was shot. Um, you know, some reporter asked him, you know, what do you feel about, you know, John Lennon dying? And he said, it really sucks because now there's one less guy that I don't have to explain everything to. So in that sense, in the same sense that, that one of the things that John Lennon enjoyed about or that Mick Jagger enjoyed about John Lennon's company was that they'd lived through all this shit and that they could just be themselves together. So there may be an element of that where with because of the CP, there's shit you don't have to explain. That's a huge part of it. Like, that does help. But it's not the main focus. Exactly. That's just the... That's just a, a particular... It's like John Lennon and Mick Jagger are not friends because they're both famous. <laughs> the fact that the, they, they lived through the Beatles and Stones being famous means there's shit they understand, but that has nothing to do with whether they actually like each other, whether they actually have something to be friends about, and what the friendship. They're, the friendship is not about being famous. That just, it just clears the, it clears, simplifies the, the, the process of the communicating. They could, I'm sure they both had friends that were not famous, and they, they, get, they worked through that, and then they understood that, then that was yeah. fine. I mean, like, you and I just met, and I feel like we're tight already like we have common stuff yeah as far as being creative and stuff like that so what are you working on right now what are you working on currently bunch of stuff um i have a show coming up in a couple weeks with string quartet i'm excited about that be a live show um but we're working on putting together uh getting the latest ralph's world record finished and ready for mix continuing to write tons and tons of songs. I think I've written, I wrote like over 50 last year and already written like six or seven this year. Um, so writing a lot of stuff. Um, I spent a couple, you know, I've got my recording studio, so I'm constantly working on new recordings and both bad example stuff and more so acoustic stuff and Ralph's World stuff. Um, so just trying to be creatively uh, uh one of my philosophies is if um, if something is out of my comfort zone, then I should probably try it. You don't so, know you don't know how it's gonna end up. Yeah, so I'd be I'm great. Tr- trying to constantly tr- find new ways to like challenge myself and make myself uncomfortable. Well, on that note, I hope the conversation hasn't made you uncomfortable. Oh no, no way! <laughs> and I, when the new Ralph World record comes out or whatever happens, yeah. Let's seriously like talk again. This has been great. We can, we can kind of maybe we'll do like a listening party where we go through the record, and we can spin the tracks, and I'll get a little summary after each track. We can talk I would about love them. to. So, where can people connect with you? Where can people find you? Well, on um with the staycation shows, um I perform Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday most weeks, uh on Twitch. So that's twitch.tv slash Ralph Covert. And then Wednesdays and Fridays, I still do the Facebook Live. And that's at, at Ralph Covert Music. That's my Ralph Covert Music page. So those are all at 8 o'clock Central. 
Uh, and with things getting crazier as the COVID stuff has changed, it's more inconsistent than it was, but that's kind of the general schedule. Eight o'clock Tuesday to Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday on Twitch, Wednesday, Friday on Facebook. Um, that's a good way to be in connect. I, I have a Patreon page, which is wonderful. I use that. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Ralph Covert. Patreon is kind of a crowd sourced crowdfunding thing. But what I the way I use it is kind of as just as a um both as a way for folks to support me, but then as a way for me to share material and songs and new things that really don't make sense to release through Spotify or through any of the creative the, the kind of the traditional commercial platforms. So for instance, over the last month or so, a uh, couple months, there's a song of mine called Invincible. And so like every week or two, I've released a recording of the song as it's been evolving in the studio. So the first one was just acoustic guitar and vocal. Then we added some drums and bass. Then we added some uh, keyboards. And then we added some uh, electric guitars. And so on, on the Patreon site, I publish and share things like that. So the people that want to do a deep dive into the music can have like all these really unique and um, uh, personal connections with it. And a lot of people on Patreon, they have all these different tiers and I don't do any tiers. I just say, pay what you want to pay and dive in and have fun with it. So patreon.com slash Ralph Covert is a great way to kind of do that kind of deep dive stuff. And then the streaming shows are a great way to kind of be involved on an ongoing basis. So, on that note, releasing things that are kind of one of a kind, I was so happy that you released, you finally released that Winnie the Pooh song on Spotify. I was so excited because I couldn't find it for the longest time. And that was that was actually a, purely a mistake. We had when we when when uh uh about ten years ago. I was able to purchase my catalog back from Disney so uh, to own all my masters, which is a really great thing as an artist. And we, so we released all the albums. Well, the, the Welcome to Ralph's World album was a greatest hits record that Dis the first thing Disney had put out. So we didn't bother to put that out because we released all the albums. And it was kind of just an oversight that uh, at a certain point, I was like looking at the record. And I'm like, wait a minute. I think I wanted to share the song with somebody on Spotify and I couldn't find it. I'm like, how can I not find it? I, I it's my job to put all this stuff out. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, because it was on the greatest hits record. We forgot that it wasn't on any of the other albums. So we were grateful as I was grateful as well to realize I'd made that mistake and get it out there. <laughs> well, you know what? Again, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much. You betcha, Bob. Thank you for time and your support. And I look forward to doing this again. And I'll, I'll share the Ralph's World record with you as soon as we get it made. Awesome. Really 